Good morning, Lighthouse Community Church. How are you guys doing today? Good, I hope. I know we're doing great. It's always good to be here. It's another good week, and it's an opportunity for us to say thank you. Would you believe that on somebody's 40th anniversary, rather than having the opportunity to spend the time at home, maybe have breakfast in bed, their family bring them donuts or something, instead we call Kathy last minute and ask her to come in and sing so beautifully with our lovely Robin. So thank you guys for blessing us this morning. And congratulations, Bill and Kathy, on 40 amazing years. And we hope that we're still here to bless you guys 40 years from now. That would be great entertainment. That would really be a true blessing. (laughs) And because the Dodgers are back on, obviously, a lot of us are really happy. But you Angel fans should be happy, too. Congratulations, Andrew. We have something to talk about, at least. (laughs) And, you know, God is doing good things. But right now, there's there's an actual something in our city that's really struggling. And I was just wondering this morning, if you would join with me in prayer for our city and just the idea of our city council, our police department, our fire department. I mean, Costa Mesa's had a pretty amazing name for a long time. And right now, every department, a lot of small towns and small cities are really struggling with that. So this morning, as we're so excited and so blessed to see what God is continuing to do through the adversity of the times, would you just join me in this uh, kind of a, a focused time of prayer? For those right now that are truly, they're still frontline defenders. They're still out there giving their all, regardless of what people think of them or how people are treating them. Would you join with me in a moment of prayer for them this morning? Father God, this, this morning people are going to wake up and put on a uniform and go stand in the middle of adverse conditions. Some of them are willing to place their lives on the line. If there's fire or rescues or even domestic situations, Father. A lot of this being at home right now is causing family life to be at an all-time grateful stress. And yet for those of us who are believers, Father, we know that we have to lift up our leaders. We know that it's not easy sometimes to follow our leaders. But we know that even coming up in the book of Acts, Father, there's absolute biblical mandate for the way we are to respond to our leaders. I pray that you first and foremost would soften our hearts to all the rights that we feel are being taken from us. Instead, remind us, Father, that our identity is not in our rights in this world, that our identity is in the kingdom of God. And there's a way that we're to serve. And there's a way that we're to pray for our firemen and for our policemen and for our city that gives them the support that they need. Even even when they don't believe, the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And we pray this morning not to hold back the rain, But we pray that you would release that rain, Father, of encouragement that so many people need. So many people this morning are going to be waking up depressed and full of anxiety. And suicide, even though it's not being talked about, is all over the place. But, Father, we pray that your joy would return and that your hope would instill in someone's heart, maybe even someone listening this morning, to just hang on, listen a little bit longer, sing one more song. And open yourself up to the idea that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God right now and is in full control. It's not news to him. He has everything that it takes for us to have hope in the midst of adversity. Father God, be with us today. Be with those policemen. Be with those frontline defenders. Thank you for the amazing job that they're attempting to do on our behalf. May everything that we continue to say and do in this building continue to bring honor and glory to your son, Jesus Christ. In his name I pray. Amen. Jeff. Oh, man. Well, good morning. 
So good to be with you, even if it's through a camera right now. And if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 19. We have been slowly journeying through the book of Acts, not because we, we think that the early church did everything right. We know that they didn't. They were human beings. They were flawed, just like us. But we're doing so because they found themselves in a very similar situation to what we find ourselves in. They found themselves in a world that didn't bend a knee to Jesus, surrounded by people who, who were driven by different values than they had. And they were just trying to figure out, how can I live as an example of Jesus in this broken, sin-scarred world? And that's what we are trying to do as we navigate through this really complex season. And so just a reminder of where we were last week before we dive into where we're going this week. Paul and his traveling companions find themselves in Ephesus. And while they were in Ephesus, they began to share the gospel message. And God began to corroborate what they were saying with these powerful acts of of miracles and things like that to the point where people began to really recognize that Jesus was everything. This was a very superstitious environment that they found themselves in. They, they, the Ephesians were known for their dependence upon magic and scrolls and idolatry and things like that. And what we began to see last week is as they began to realize that Jesus plus anything else was nothing, but Jesus plus nothing is everything, they began to take those other things, those magic scrolls, their idols, and they began to dispose of them publicly so that they could take hold of Jesus with both hands. Just recognizing, Jesus, you alone can save me. These things that I've been holding on to can't. And this made, sent a shockwave through Ephesus because, again, this was a very superstitious environment. And it was a shot across the bow of some of the power brokers in Ephesus. And And of course, what ends up happening throughout history is that when you take a shot at power brokers, the power brokers tend to push back. And today what we're going to look at is the ways in which the power brokers push back. Now, in just a moment, we're going to dive into the scripture. But before we get there, let me give you just a little bit of context to what Ephesus was about. The city of Ephesus, can we just go ahead and throw the map up on the screen here? The city of Ephesus is right there in the middle of the the thing. It was the one of the central cities in Asia Minor. Ephesus was at the crossroads of the Roman Empire. On the one hand, you have Italy and Rome, and on the other hand, you have like the Middle East. And in the middle of that was Ephesus. So not only was it kind of a central crossing point for the Roman Empire, but it was also the largest seaport in all of Asia, which means that there were people coming in and going out. And Ephesus had a tremendous influence culturally, uh, financially, and spiritually across the planet, but most specifically in Asia. But if there was one thing that Ephesus was known for, it was for its temple to the goddess Artemis. You can see this picture of the temple, or at least an artist's recreation of it. This temple cast a shadow over the entire city. And in fact, Antipater of Sidon, an ancient writer who wrote a book about the seven ancient wonders of the world, wrote this about this temple. He says, I've set eyes on the walls of lofty Babylon, on which is a road for chariots, and upon the statue of Zeus by the Alphaeus, and the hanging gardens, and the colossus of the sun, and the huge labor of the pyramids, and the vast tombs of Mausolus. But when I saw the house of Artemis that mounted to the clouds, those other marvels lost their brilliancy. In other words, 
this building was world-renowned. But at the end of the day, it was just a box. And what was inside mattered more to the Ephesians because what was inside was a... It was, it was dedicated to the goddess Artemis. And Artemis was considered the most powerful god in all of Asia. Can we go ahead and show a picture of her? So this is Artemis. And Artemis was supposedly over many things. She was over things like fertility. You see those what looks like eggs there in the middle. She, she was a goddess of fertility. She was supposedly over the fates, had the ability to control a human being's fate. She was also considered to be the goddess of life and death and over the underworld. And then finally, and most importantly for Ephesus, she was the patron goddess of Ephesus, which meant that all of their financial security was dependent upon her. And so it makes sense. We can go ahead and get rid of the picture there. It makes sense that the Ephesians worshipped her. And there was a huge business being made. One of their major exports was actually shrines to the temple and the goddess of Artemis. They, they sent them all around Asia and beyond so that people could worship Artemis. Now let's pause for a moment and just consider for a second why people worship idols. This is a really important thing because we've been doing it as far back as Adam and Eve. We have been worshiping created things. And here's the reason why. At the end of the day, people turn to idols, they turn to gods with the intent, the hope that they can somehow give them control over that which they fear, right? If we're afraid of something, we turn to things which we think can give us some semblance of control, some power over it. So take Adam and Eve, for instance. Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. They were created to do life with God. And yet at some point in in, uh, Genesis chapter 3, the serpent comes in and begins to whisper into Adam and Eve's ear, God has withheld something from you. He hasn't let you know the difference between good and evil, and that's what's separating you from him. And in a moment, Adam and Eve begin to think that they are deficient in some way, that God really may have withheld something from them. And then they turn to the tree that God said was off limits. And they begin to think, you know, that fruit can give us the very thing that he's withheld from us. And that fruit became a pseudo-God that they reached for and bit into, knowing full well that it was in complete defiance of what God had said. But for them, it was everything. Or take the Egyptians, right? The Egyptians lived in a desert where the, the sun could destroy crops. They lived on the edge of the Nile River, which was this artery of life that oftentimes would overflow its boundaries. And so it makes sense then that the Egyptians would worship Ra, the sun god, and Hopi, the, the god of the Nile, as two of their primary gods that they worshipped because they seemingly controlled the very things that the Egyptians were concerned about. Well, now go back to Artemis and the Ephesians. Here is a God that supposedly controls things like childbearing, your fate, your life and your death, and then finally, just your well-being, your financial well-being. I mean, it was so much so that people would come from all over Asia and all over the world, and one of the first stops they would do is they would go to the temple, and they would bring their financial offering as a thanks to Artemis for their ability to make trade and for their ability to make money, with the expectation then that Artemis would bless their trade and they would make even more money. 
And we know from history that uh, the temple of Artemis was actually the largest bank in all of Asia, specifically because of this. This is the influence that Artemis held over the city of Ephesus. And it's into this that Paul begins to preach the gospel. It's into this arena that God begins, or, and that, that Paul begins to say that Jesus, the Messiah, has come. And he alone can save you. He alone has, the, has control over one's eternal fate. And when people began to let go of their idols and let go of their magic scrolls and take hold of Jesus with both hands, that sent a shockwave through Ephesus. And the power brokers who benefited off of Artemis' influence in this city and beyond, they obviously began to push back because that's what power brokers have always done throughout history. When my power is challenged, I will react with power to try to keep what I feel rightfully belongs to me. So let's go ahead and begin reading in Acts chapter, tw- uh, chapter 19, verse 23. About this time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. Now, the way is just shorthand for Christ followers following Jesus, who was the way, the truth, and the life. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis and brought a lot of business for the craftsmen there, and he called them together along with the workers and related trades, and he said, you know, my friends that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He has the audacity to say that gods made by human hands aren't gods at all. Can you believe that? There's a danger not only to our trade that it will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. Now, I'm curious which of those two they were probably most concerned about, right? The goddess Artemis's name or their pocketbook. For them, they were inextricably tied. As Artemis rose, their well-being rose, so obviously both were important. And they said, the goddess herself who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. So this was the argument that he was making, saying, guys, we've got to put a stop to this. Well, when they heard this, they were furious. And they began shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd. He wanted to make a case. But the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. In other words, they're saying, hey, listen, Paul, I know you want to go make a case for Jesus. I know you look at this as an opportunity to share the gospel. But, but you've got to understand, Paul, this is a mob. They are not listening. They will tear you apart. Just stay away, please. There's other times to share. The assembly was in confusion. This gathering, this mob of people was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing. Some were shouting another. (laughs) Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. And this is something that we, we learn through history about mobs. There is something attractive about them. Because at the end of the day, mobs are powerful. Just the amount of bodies together and power is attractive. Just, 
Mobs are power in its most raw and unrefined form. Because the volume of the voice and the energy of the crowd, it draws people in. And it's like riding a wave. It's exhilarating to be a part of, but it's also a little scary because we know that they can turn violent very quickly. We're seeing that around the country right now. We're seeing the evidence of the destructive power of a mob when it turns. And so this mob was not a place that Paul could have gotten the message across because they weren't listening. They were just screaming, drowning out any sort of conversation. But here's something else that we know about mobs. Power that is inherent in the mobs is attractive. And there will always be people who will seek to turn that raw power toward their own ends. And what I'm finding is that there are a lot of people who are screaming. Let's let's just talk for a moment. And I know that this is very dangerous ground to tread, so I go with a little bit of trepidation, or a whole lot of trepidation. But let's just talk for a moment about what's going on in our country. There are crowds of people protesting injustice, and rightfully so. Protesting the deaths deaths of people, not just one, although obviously George Floyd was kind of the the straw that broke the camel's back, but Ahmaud Aubrey and and Breonna Taylor and others. Protesting injustice as they see it, and there is righteous indignation towards that. However, they began to shout, Black Lives Matter. And I think all of us can agree. A black person's life matters. But here's where it gets dangerous. An organization exists by the same name that does not necessarily stand for the same values that many people in the crowd are screaming. And so when they shout, Black Lives Matter, they are unintentionally, perhaps, giving control and and influence to this group of people that have very, very counter- American values and very counter values that we as Christ followers might necessarily present. Again, I want to be very careful here. But there will always be groups of people who will look to steer the power of the mob toward their own ends. There are other groups of people who are using this either as as a reason for why we need to get rid of the current administration or as the reason why we need to stay with the current administration. And the way that they are telling the story, the way they are spinning things, supports their narrative. It becomes very messy. So there will always be people who will look to use the raw and unrefined power of the mob toward their own ends. There will also be groups of people who will do anything and everything they can to distance themselves from the ire of the mob. Basically trying to say, hey, that's not me. I sh- I, you, you, you can be mad at that, but I'm not with that. And that's exactly what happens with a group of Jews. Because remember, Paul was coming as a Jew sharing about the, the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, who would come. And so the Jews felt thrust into this and they felt like they were somewhere in the crosshairs of this mob and they wanted to do anything they could to get out from the focus of it. And so the Jews in the crowd, this is verse 33, the Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander, one of theirs, to the front and they shouted instructions to him. Basically, he was, he, he was the one that they threw to the crowd and said, you go tell him. This is what my wife does to me all the time. 
He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This is not a conversation. We will simply shout you down and declare that Artemis is greater than whatever it is that you want to preach. We don't want to hear what you have to say. We just want to tell the world the greatest Artemis of the, of the Ephesians. Now, eventually, one of the crowd, one of the clerks in the city gets up, calms the crowd down and says, Guys, listen, the Roman authorities are going to charge us with rioting if we continue. It is in our best interest to stop this. And that's the only way that the whole thing dies down. But what I want to do this morning is I want to look at how the people of Ephesus responded to a shot across the bow of their own power structure when something challenged their worldview. And I want to compare it to how we as Christ followers should approach the power structures when things of this world are shaken because they're all being shaken. Even our ability to worship is being shaken. And we want to just address that forthrightly. Now, I want to be really clear here as I go in, because I've already kind of stepped into this a little bit. I am not going to stand up here, and I am not going to either stand in support of or condemnation of the public displays of, of, of anger going on around our country. Because as with everything, they're not all good or all bad. They're a mixture of both. There is, a, there is an understandable anger about injustice that is flowing out. And I'm glad that people are giving voice to it and I'm glad that we're talking about it. But it's also being mixed with humanity. Like nobody's perfect. And we are bringing our humanity into it. And, and we're watching incredibly destructive things happening in places like Seattle and Portland right now. And has happened all across the country in different places. Incredibly destructive stuff. It is messy and it is hard. We just want to address what's going on. And, and I find myself really thirsty, for one. What, what I really want to address this morning, as we talk about the messiness of our culture and of what's going on in America, I don't want to talk about the power struggle of the protests that have turned in some ways into riots, I want to talk about what's underneath it. Because throughout history, what is underneath movements of people and what is underneath people's reaction to change is ultimately power. Power is underneath it. And let's talk about Artemis for a moment. Artemis was simply the packaging that for the Ephesians symbolized their hold on power. And remember why power is so important. Power gives us some semblance of control, gives us the impression that we have the ability to control the world and its messiness. We have the ability to protect ourselves. Humanity throughout history has been attracted to idols, been attracted to things that give us the belief that we can control our circumstances. For the Ephesians, it was Artemis. 
We also have some idols. We have a lot of idols. But all of them are simply packaging around the same thing, and that is a desire for control, a desire for power. And they, the American idols, the forms that it takes are things like money, right? If, if you have money, you can protect yourself from a whole lot of things or, or looks, right? If you look a certain way, if you hold yourself in a certain way, you will be taken more seriously. You will be accepted at your school or in your workplace or just, you know, on your Instagram feed. Or success. If you can climb the corporate ladder to a certain point, then you will have control over your life. Then it won't be somebody else telling you how to live. You will be the one who will get to determine how you live. But I think that in this season, given that it's an election year, there is perhaps no greater packaging that we wrap around our corporate hunger for power and control than political parties. I, I don't think any of us could argue that a lot of the contentiousness that we're experiencing during a season where we have both the racial right stuff going on as well as the, the COVID virus, quarantine and all that stuff going on, all of this is being colored by the fact that it is an election year. And there are a lot of people who are looking to a particular political party as the means to which they can control the direction our country goes. And there are people who are terrified of the direction they see our country going in. And they say, if we can only get our party into power, into having greater power, we can steer this country. There are others who are saying, I'm terrified that if those others get control of the country, they're going to drive it off a cliff. So we need to make sure that we retain the power that we've got. And so everything that happens has become a fight. Masks have become a fight. Racial reconciliation has become a fight, a battle, a power struggle. Even worshiping down at the beach and doing evangelism has become a battle. And it's so messy and it's so ugly and it colors everything and it grieves my heart to see the way that we take situations that are hard, that we want... I mean, I remember back in 9-11 when the Twin Towers fell and we as a country united as a people. And that hasn't happened this year. Everything we've been hit with, the body blow of COVID-19 and the shutdowns and people losing businesses and people losing freedoms, the ability to go out and do things, the ability, you know, and then all of the stuff with the racial, you know, the, the deaths... Ahmaud Aubrey and, and Breonna Taylor and, and George Floyd, and then all of the stuff that's happened, all of that could have united us as a people and instead it's fractured us and pushed us further and further apart as people have sought to spin the narrative and argue, man, if you would just see it this way, you'd be right. And we're yelling at one another, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. You know, I have the right to wear a face mask. You have a right to protect other people. You know, we're yelling at one another and nobody's listening. And it's ugly and it's messy. We are a people who are addicted to power and we are seeking to grasp as much of it as we can and we are willing to tear one another down in the process. And into this messy conversation, I simply want to suggest that perhaps we need to learn from Jesus. Because Jesus was somebody who had an immense amount of power. Jesus was God in human flesh. Jesus 
was the Son of God. He had created the world and he entered into it. There was ever anybody who could have exercised his power to bring about his will, it was him. But the thing is, Jesus approached power radically differently than the world does. And this morning, I want to look at the way that Jesus approached power over and against the way that the world tends to approach it. Because Jesus did not come to try to get his way and to usher in his will. Because that's how we often approach power. Power will give me the ability to make my will be done. To protect me, to insulate me from the things I fear. Jesus wasn't driven by fear. Jesus was driven by love. So much so that he confronted the very thing he was afraid of, death on a Roman cross, and willingly walked to it out of love for you and for me. And the thing is, Jesus wasn't trying to impose his will upon the world. Jesus was seeking to do his Father's will, to usher in his Father's kingdom into the midst of the kingdoms of this world. And the, kingdom of the, the kingdoms of this world, the kingdoms that we have all been born into and raised up in, are completely contrary in the values to God's kingdom. So much so that theologians often refer to God's kingdom as the upside-down kingdom. Because in God's kingdom economy, the last are first. In God's economy, the persecuted and the brokenhearted are considered blessed. In God's kingdom, the greatest is the servant of all. And Jesus came to exemplify, came to model for us a different way. And that's what we want to look at this morning. So there's a couple of ways that I want to do this. I want to look at three ways in which Jesus' approach to power was very different from the way that the world or the way that the mob does it. Because for the mob, it's all about the amount of people together. This is our power, is, is the amount of people we can gather together and how loudly we can yell for whatever it is that we believe. Jesus went the opposite direction. Jesus said, I am going to send you out. We, the, the goal of the kingdom of God is that we scatter into the world and we fill the whole world up, that our lives would reflect the heart of God through the way that we treat one another. So he would say things like, you are the light of the world, or you're yeast that begins to work its way through the whole batch of dough, because by that, the whole batch of dough will be transformed. And he said, rather than focusing on gathering together in a holy huddle to protect yourself from the world. I want you to go into the world and make disciples. Toward that end, the mob and, and the world approaches power as this is the way by which we can get our, our, you know, our will to be done. We can cajole, we can force others to do our bidding that we can impose our will onto another. But Jesus took it a completely different direction. Jesus approached it, not as you need to strong arm others into doing what you want, get your will at all costs. Jesus said, go and change the world through the way that you live, through the way that you interact with one another. 
He said, the world will know you, my, my disciples. How? Through the way that you love one another. Peter put it this way. Live such good lives in front of the unbelieving world, in front of your unbelieving neighbors, that although they accuse you of being small-minded and using God as a crutch, although they accuse you of being bigoted and judgmental, they'll see the way you live. They'll see the way you love. And they'll ultimately glorify God as God. They will come to call him their father as well. That's the goal, is that the way we live our life would change this world. Not that we would somehow grasp enough power that we can impose our will onto others. And this brings us to our final way that I just want to explore the difference between power of Jesus versus the way that the world approaches power. The world would say that he with the most power gets his way. And for far too long, they would suggest there have been some people who have held that power to the detriment of others. And so right now, what they're trying to do is to change the power dynamic so that those who have had no power get to have it and those who have had too much of it, let go of it. Pushing down some so that others can rise up. But at the end of the day, it's still a group of people imposing their will over and against somebody else. Jesus, on the other hand, approached it this way. He did not seek to impose his will on others. Jesus sought to look out for the needs of others. He took his position of security as the son of God. And from that position of strength, he reached out and he looked for ways to hold others up and care for other people's needs. He placed himself into positions that were socially compromising. I think of Jesus walking down the street and the children coming to him and, and, and the disciples saying, ah, leave him alone, he's too busy. He said, no, 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 let the kids come to me because the kingdom of God belongs to them. And if you want to take hold of it, you need to become like them in heart, dependent, trusting. Or Jesus walking down the street in a leper, calls out to him, Jesus, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And rather than just walking by this man who was unclean, he moved towards him. What do you want me to do? I want you to heal me. Now, Jesus could have easily just spoken a word over him and healed him. And that would have healed him physically. But remember, this man had been treated as a leper from a good portion of his life. He had begun to identify as his brokenness. And so Jesus did something even more powerful when he reached out and he put his hand on the leper's shoulder to be healed. Because not only was he healing that man physically, he was healing him emotionally as he reminded him that he was also human. And he was restoring his humanity alongside of his healing. Perhaps the most powerful example of Jesus acting contrary to how the power brokers of the world would act is when a woman was caught in adultery, dragged before him, looking, they, this group of Jews were looking to catch Jesus in a compromising position, looking to get him to be judgmental. This woman was caught in a, an adulterous act. Of course, they didn't bring the guy. They just brought the gal, waiting for Jesus to tell him what they should do. Jesus looked at them, he stood up in between them and this woman, and he looked them in the eyes and he said, let you who is without stone, or you who is without sin, cast the first stone. Remember, Jesus was the only person in that crowd who could have picked up a stone and thrown it at her. He chose not to. 
the final way that I see Jesus modeling this absolutely countercultural approach is that he came to reestablish God's kingdom on earth. He came to model for humanity the heart of God. They anticipated the Messiah was going to come as a conquering king who would overthrow their enemy, which they thought was Rome. And Jesus did come to overthrow the enemy, but the enemy he came to overthrow was sin. He came to break the chains of sin. And he did so not with a sword dripping in the blood of his enemies, but with a cross dripping in his own blood. That is how Jesus conquered our enemy. Is as a sacrificial servant, not as a conquering king. And as Christ followers, I think it's important for us to consider how Jesus would enter into our reality. In fact, I've, I've been reminded several times that, that there's a lot of people who are saying, what would Jesus do right now? In fact, I, I've received several emails. I've seen a lot on social media, people saying things like, The church should just rise up and do what Jesus would do and start gathering again, irrespective of what our governor says. And I find myself questioning if that's what Jesus would do. Would Jesus, if he showed up today, say, we, the church, need to just continue to be the church and gather together and sing out loud in a room together with no face masks? We are free in Christ. We're free indeed. Is that really what Jesus would call us to do? And I find myself just having, there's a check in my spirit going, no. Jesus was never focused on thumbing his nose at the, the powers that be. In fact, Jesus more often than not moved towards them and worked in such a way that he, he was standing in opposition at times to the, the religious people who had misunderstood the heart of God. And he was more focused on sending his sons and daughters, his followers, to go be the church, not upon simply going to church, right? Now, let me say this. I can't wait till we can be back in this room together. I can't wait till we can worship, we can sing songs of praise to Jesus. can't wait till we don't have to do so with face masks on and we don't have to worry about this. I know that there will come a day, whether on this planet or when Jesus returns and he remakes all things and that's gone, there will come a day when that will be. But until such a time, I truly believe that Jesus would be more concerned that we are living as the church in our unique spheres of influence than that we fight vehemently for our right to go to church. Again, I am not downplaying the importance of this. I am not downplaying the importance of gathering together and supporting one another. We can do so through phone calls and through reaching out to one another, perhaps even seeing one another. Down at the park, there are some of you who are gathering right now in people's homes, you know, even now being the church. Don't stop doing that. Let's lean into every place that we have, but let us not sacrifice our witness. Because when we start fighting for our rights... It's as if, and we have rights, right? We're American citizens. The the First Amendment gives us the right to to the ability to worship, that that our government can't impose things that limit our abilities to worship God, to practice our religion. 
And there's a lot of us who feel like the government has way overstepped. But may I simply remind you that for us to do what our our knee-jerk response would be, which is to push back and argue and, and rebel, that would be fighting as the world does. That would be fighting as American citizens imposing our rights But I need to remind us that we are first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of God. Living in a world that's watching us and our lives are on display. And we are called to live as ambassadors of the values of our king in the spheres of influence that he has planted us. And so we cannot think of ourselves solely as free to do anything that we want. Are we free in Christ? Absolutely. We are free from the shackles of sin. We are free from condemnation. We are free to be restored back into relationship with God. But we are not free to live any way that we want. We are no longer our own. We were bought at a price. We are now bond servants, which is just a nice word for somebody who chooses to be a slave to another. And the one that we have chosen to follow as our Lord is Jesus. What that means is that we allow his example to begin to shape our lives. And the way that we speak to others reflects the way he would speak to them. And I find myself going, well, what would Jesus do with the unrest that we see going on in our world right now? With, I'm with Jeff. My heart breaks right now for the men and women in blue who have to go out day after day and night after night and place themselves into positions to stand in the gap when they are the ones who were the focal point of the mob's anger. They've been losing their lives. They're, I'm sure, terrified in many cases. Does that mean that everything that police officers in uniform have done is correct? No, I'm not suggesting that. What I am suggesting is that there is no one who is righteous. And I just can't help but wonder if Jesus were to walk around today, what would he do? And I just, the picture I get is of of those men, those African-American men who were part of the, the, the group of protesters, when the mob begins to pick up stones to hurl them at the police officers, when one of the cops got separated from the rest of his group, these men placed themselves as a shield around that police officer. They put themselves into a position of vulnerability to protect him. Just like Jesus did with the woman who had been caught in adultery, put himself between the mob and her. I suspect that our our Lord Jesus would not respond the way the world does. When everybody else is taking positions and dividing up and saying, you're wrong, we're right, and yelling, he would return blessing for curses. He would pray for those who persecuted him. He would move towards the hurting regardless of what color their skin was, regardless of where they lived in the city, regardless of whether they were here legally or illegally. He would care for their needs. He would care about children, even if he didn't have any children of his own. 
He would care for unbelieving neighbors and their souls more than he would care about our rights. Guys, I'm not, I, I don't know perfectly. what I, I pray regularly, Jesus, show me what you would do because I want to be a reflection of you. And we all need to grapple with this. And it ultimately comes down to the Holy Spirit giving us direction in any and every opportunity. How would you have me respond? All I know is that Jesus did not seek out power so he could impose his will upon the world and upon other people who were less powerful. He used his power to lift others up who were hurting. He moved towards the marginalized. He spoke up for those who had no voice. He stood in the gap for those who were being attacked. And he spoke words of life. May we be the kind of people who speak words of life, but may we be the kind of people who let our lives speak. May we be reflections of our Lord God into this broken and sin-scarred world. Would you pray with me? Father God, I want to confess that I am attracted by the Artemises of our world. I, too, have been drawn in by a desire for power. I, too, have given way too much concern for an election four months away. I, too, have been spent way too much time sitting in judgment on people who look differently than I do or who act differently than I do or who who hold different values than I do. I have not spoken up or perhaps I've spoken too vehemently from my own perspective out of a desire to protect my own sense of self-preservation. God, we, your people, want to be reflections of your heart, so we invite you to have your way with us. Holy Spirit, would you come and begin to clean house? If there is anything in us that is contrary to your heart, if there are idols that we've been holding on to, looking to for our security, would you give us the strength to let go of them? God, there are a lot of people who feel very strongly about a lot of things in our society right now and we're doing a pretty poor job of having conversation. We're just doing what the Ephesians did and yelling over one another. Would you give us the ears to hear? Both what they're saying, but even more importantly, would you give us the ears to hear what you want to say to us? Would you send us out as light in the darkness? Would you send us out as salt to preserve and to season this world? Would you send us out as yeast to begin to work through this world and begin to change it as we reflect your values in America? Because we are first and foremost citizens of your kingdom, Father. We want to live according to your values not the values of this world. We want to fight in the way that you fight. And we want to fight against our true enemy, which is spiritual, not flesh and blood. The people standing on the other side, the people who are going to vote differently than us, they are not our enemy. But we have an enemy. We truly have an enemy. He's been the same enemy that's been whispering lies into the ears of our most ancient ancestors and he continues to whisper lies. He continues to suggest that we are divided. May we be the kind of people who move towards those who seem too far away. 
may we become all things to all people that we might win a few. Not so that our own names would be made great, but so that yours would be made great. Not so that we could build up and, or, or protect our own little kingdoms, but so that we could protect and advance yours. Pray these things, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Let's worship together. forgiven because you were forsaken I'm accepted you were condemned I'm alive and well your spirit is within me because you died and rose again I'm forgiven you were forsaken I'm accepted you were condemned I'm alive and well your spirit is within me because you died and rose again amazing Amazing love, how 
prayer, my hope that if there's anything that you take from this today, 
It's that we would stop looking at ourselves primarily as American citizens who fight for our rights as the world does and begin to consider ourselves as citizens of the kingdom of God living in America. Our lives are on display. We're not our own. We were bought at a price. So may we honor God with our, with our, with our time, with our treasures, with the things that he has given us the ability to do. May, we, may our lives reflect his values and the values of our Father's kingdom into this world. And may they be so countercultural that it makes people angry. There's always going to be detractors. Jesus was crucified because of how radical his life was. You don't crucify Mr. Rogers. He was a William Wallace because he challenged the power brokers. May our lives challenge the power brokers simply through the way we live, the way we love, the way that we place others' needs ahead of our own. Now, with that said, we also long to be together. I I miss you very, very much. And right now, while we do not have the ability to gather in this place safely, we are making, we are coming up with creative ways that we can see one another and that we can continue to just connect. If you're not in a life group, please let us know because we want to get you connected into one. They, most of the life groups typically take a break for summer. I don't know of any right now that are taking a break for summer because of how much we need them. And if you're not in one, All you need to do is email pastor at lighthousecommunity.com and we will get you plugged into one. Secondly, if you are tired of just worshiping alone on a Sunday morning, let us know and we will help connect you with a smaller group that's meeting in someone's home, worshiping there because we do value gathering together and we can do it there. Thirdly, next Sunday, not this Sunday, but the following Sunday, right after church, we're going to do drive-through communion because, man, it's been a little bit. And while we've done communion in our homes, we, Jeff and I just wanted an opportunity to see you, to get to serve you communion. We have little single service ones that are totally sanitized and safe. We'll be wearing a face mask. Please come by after the service, not this Sunday, but the following. We're also going to be doing a worship night in our parking lot or somewhere on our, our, our place sometime in August, probably later August. So be looking out for those, that information soon. Um, but in everything. May we now go be the church because that's what we've been called to do. We love you very much. Now go let your life so, light so shine amongst the world that although they want to ignore you, they ultimately are drawn to our Father. Have a wonderful week. Love you.